I'd walk through the forests, the mountains, and the dunes. I'd swim the rivers, the seas, and the ocean. And I'd listen. I'd listen to the voices of wilderness. The unheard sounds and the forgotten stories that give us the answers humanity is searching for. Welcome to the Wild Foundation Podcast, Voices of Wilderness. Through the stories our guests share, you'll learn about how we can and must protect wilderness for a healthy future. We hope to leave you a little more inspired to speak out, take action, make a difference, and find solutions to the biodiversity and climate crises. Hi, everyone. As you know, through Voices of Wilderness, we want to share stories with you. Stories that will make you travel, discover nature, get to know it better, and find out how you, with your gifts and your expertise, can help safeguard it just by being yourself. Sometimes we think that in order to act on behalf of the environment, we have to be a scientist, a government official, an anthropologist, or just really some other profession that ends up looking pretty different from what we do on a day-to-day basis. But who you are, your qualities, ideas, and creativity are unique, and they can make a huge difference and impact. Today we're bringing you the story of the book Planting an Idea, a guidebook to critical and creative thinking about environmental issues. And who better to dive into this book with than its authors, Jerry and Natasha. Jerry Apps calls himself a farm boy from Wisconsin who spent more than 30 years teaching at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Natasha Kasulk is a former journalist, the former editor of Wisconsin Natural Resources Magazine, and is currently the Director of Strategic Communications for the Vice Chancellor of Research and Graduate Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This super awesome father-in-law, daughter-in-law duo have teamed up to give readers pages upon pages of critical advice on how to become a positive actor in the climate and biodiversity crises. All right, but enough from me. Let's get into their story. Thanks for having us. My name is Jerry Apps, and I, uh, I'm a farm boy uh, from Wisconsin, and I, uh, I spent 30-plus uh, years uh, teaching at the uh, university in, in Madison uh, about the topics uh, that we're discussing uh, today. And for the last 30 years, I've been writing full-time, and I have been doing uh, TV documentaries for uh, PBS on a number of these topics uh, as well. So um, I'll turn this over to Natasha, and she can say a few words about her background. By the way, Natasha is my daughter-in-law, if you haven't figured that out along the way. Thank you for full disclosure and transparency, Jerry, because that's, uh, <laughs> that's actually an important topic in our book is to uh, know your sources and uh, find reliable, accurate uh, resources. And so Jerry and I want to be transparent about that. That's that's not truly why I wrote the book, although I feel very honored to write a book with my father-in-law who has great experience. But um, I'm a former journalist for a daily newspaper. Um, I have a degree in mass comm, journalism and biology. I'm also the former editor of Wisconsin State Environmental Magazine called Wisconsin Natural Resources. And I'm currently um, a 
Research Communications Director for the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So I'm super passionate about sharing easily digestible information for people related to science and having good conversations and talking about what makes something a reliable source. And I use those lessons um, frequently when I teach at uh, Madison College. I teach journalism classes. And recently developed a course in science communications that was supported by the college for STEM fields, but really just about anyone, because it's it's important that we were all communicating about science and environmental issues and trying to figure out where our place is in the natural world. I also volunteer as a communicator for Wisconsin Green Fire, which is a nonprofit that came about a few years ago to share science-based data, reliable information in policy making. So trying to better inform our laws and regulations. We're all about communication between Julia and I and, and our whole mission with what we do in our work is sharing kind of bite-sized, rele- relevant information that's, like you said, easily digestible, making people feel empowered to act, but also you have to have that knowledge to feel like you can do something um, and to feel like you can really create an impact. Um, so I really resonate with what you just said. And I'm so excited to dive into these questions because I think it's such an interesting take to write this book um, with a focus on critical and creative thinking. And, you know, knowing more about your background in communications, I can I can see why that's an important focus, but I'd love for you both to share kind of what was the inspiration for that approach? Because it is very different from so many other science manuals, I'll say, and that, that don't feel as very relatable. Let me add a couple of things. I, I also have taught creative writing courses for 40 years, and I, uh, I will fess up uh, that I am a recovering academic, which means I've been working very hard to help translate uh, academic-sounding material into uh, easily accessible material. And that's what Natasha and I have uh, tried to do with this book, Uh, By taking topics that have all kinds of academic uh, writings about them and translate that into something that ordinary folks can see and understand and will want to do something about. Because, uh, as Natasha alluded to, I I still run this little farm up in central Wisconsin, and it's more of a nature preserve than anything because I'm doing pasture renovation and all that kind of stuff. And and I write about that. I've written columns for six. 60 years about environmental topics. Uh, And all of a sudden, uh, Natasha and I decided maybe it's time. As we look at the environmental problems that the nation and the world faces today, that we should try and put together something that would help ordinary people see that that it's everyone's responsibility to do something about the environment, not just a handful of politicians uh, and organization people and, and so on. And so that's a theme that runs through our book. You can do it as an individual. You can do it. You can do critical thinking. You can do creative thinking. It is not something for the elite. It's something that everyone can do. And we try to make this point very, very strongly. It is everyone's responsibility to take a part in making these decisions. Not only is this a how-to book, but this is a book that is saying to people, hey, look, we're at a critical time in this country 
in this world today. Let's see if we can figure out how to be less at loggerheads with each other and more together on what needs to happen. I can say a lot more about this as we go along. I, I love that. I mean, that was that's the main point, right? We all need to be doing something, something. It, you know, we don't have to be dedicating every single second of our life to this. But if we can just each contribute something to make the world a better place when it comes to the environment, that's the first step in changing everything. And that's the intention, uh, intention of the book. Which is why we're so excited to share it and dive a little bit deeper into it. We offered, we offered the critical and creative thinking and some definitions, and but then we, we have action steps. And I that's really where I get excited, right? The creative ways that you can apply these tactics, skills. And I, I really hope, you know, and there's so much polarization. And like Jerry said, we're at a loggerhead to, to make positive change, that this is an opportunity for people to take the and sort of self-evaluate and ask themselves, why do I believe what I do? And where is where is my place here? Because some people don't feel they have a role or the knowledge. And I think we're also very interested in environmental and social justice and finding diversity in voices and that we continuing to go back to the same resources and the same um, storytellers, that there's just a, a wealth of other resources and opportunities and, and people in, in being experiential and getting out and providing accessibility were all really important to us. You mentioned storytelling, and that is such an important tool that we use at WILD to convey big messages. How do you feel this book um, kind of leans into that or lends itself to, to people being able to rely on storytelling as a tool for change? Let me, uh, let me comment on that because... <laughs> Uh, my creative writing courses are all about storytelling. I've been trying to teach for 40 years how someone can tell their story. I grew up with storytellers. I grew up before electricity on our farm. And we, as a group of farmers, whenever we got together, we were, we were telling stories. And I try to impress on my writing students and anyone else that will listen that the story is a, a way of helping people understand something that they, at the moment, and, and to learn something that they don't realize they are learning because a story a story goes is at several levels it provides information of course and it provides maybe entertainment but it also has an emotional level to it it grabs you where you don't realize it it gets you thinking about things it may bring tears to your eyes it may make you chuckle but i uh, i'm a uh, avid proponent of storytelling and believe I taught storytelling all through my college years of teaching and one of my fellow professors to me one day said apps you might amount to something if you quit telling those stupid stories students don't want to hear stories they want one two three four five I said not so Bob not so Stories are a way of teaching that get to people in ways that go way beyond the linear, the one, two, three, four. They, we have the answer and we'll tell you what it is. It's way beyond that. Natasha and I have tried to tell stories through this book as a way of helping people understand not only what's going wrong in our attempts to help prevent 
catastrophes in the environment, but in showing people ways in which they can go at that through critical thinking, creative thinking, and putting that together in a story. I think the stories make us more relatable to one another that, you know, I remember sitting in history classes and, you know, I was instructed to memorize dates and names and events. That's not how I learned. And it made me feel like a failure. Whereas what I was more interested in were the stories behind the events. And as I've tried to figure out what kind of a learner I am, um, I've come to realize maybe it's not a data dump having a lot of numbers or Excel spreadsheets and having to comb through that. What I remember are stories (laughs) and it helps me better understand where someone else is coming from. It gives us a starting point. Maybe we came from very different backgrounds and we have very different belief systems. But if I, we need to be good listeners, I think is really important in the storytelling process. And then it helps me better understand where someone might be coming from and how they've developed their opinions. And, And then I think we can start talking. I firmly, firmly resonate with everything the two of you just said. It genuinely is the way that we try to approach environmental communications because for people who have never experienced the wonders of nature, because, you know, so many of us are disconnected from that, it's really the only bridge that we have at this point for people who can't necessarily travel the world and see these things for themselves. So I think it's so important and so wonderful that the two of you have put an emphasis on that in this book. Is there, you know, there's a flow to the book, there's a structure to the book. What was the intention behind that? And how did you both decide what that would look like when you were putting it together? Well, first off, we had to figure out how are, we going to, how are we going to do it? This is a complicated topic. And I've been teaching this creative and, and, and critical thinking stuff for years, in, including helping people develop personal philosophies and they're looking at their beliefs and all that. I also have had a, a good deal of experience with certain aspects of the environment as I, I'm a rural historian. And my historical digging has focused on agriculture as a primary uh, interest. And as you probably know more than I do maybe factory farming has come under considerable pressure and it should and I discussed that in, in the book and how one may be able to look at that and I'm also very much interested in water uh, because the world is has a, has a finite amount of water and people don't realize that and we've we've just got to figure out a way of dealing with water different than we have. Natasha has other interests, and maybe Natasha, you could say then how we divided things up as we went along. Sure. I, I like the idea of a guidebook, right? I like guiding people through a process and then giving them sort of a homework assignment as a teacher to go and apply these in the way that's most appropriate to you in your life, your socioeconomic situation, where you live, your place in the world, right? I don't want to be the one to tell you this is the only way to do it. So um, we set it up with the ideas for critical creative thinking, some barriers that you might be facing to being able to do that successfully, how you can overcome those. And then 
we invite the reader to join us in trying to figure out some of these problems. I'm really, really interested in climate change and the like having an experiential approach. I, not everyone's going to be able to travel to see a glacier, right? But um, we can bring that to them. There have been art installations that have come to big cities where people can walk by and see a big chunk of ice melting and ask questions. And I think of the guidebook almost as like a, a docent, as a tour guide, sort of walking you through these issues and then you can ask your own questions and do a little on your own sort of exploring. But I, I like the idea of a guidebook. We hope to build workshops off of some of these um, that people we can take into their communities and see how they can apply it. Um, I'm recently very interested in like the Nomo May. So what can we do to help our pollinators at a critical time of the year? Um, it's okay with me not to mow my lawn for a month if it means we're going to have food on the table and to see those connections, the important role pollinators play. And frankly, another issue that's been very important to me is biodiversity and seeing, you know, some people ask, well, why do I care about that species? I don't like spiders. Why, what role do they play? They may play roles we don't even know yet. We may find cures for things, you know, from a, a species that we don't know yet. And so the possibilities that biodiversity and the importance of how we're all connected is something that's really important to me. So those were some of the issues I personally wanted to write about. I mean, you both touched upon so many things in the book. And it, it like you said, it's a, it's a guidebook and it's a wonderful guidebook. I, I'm just, I'm excited to share it with people truly. Um, and, I, you know, you did touch a little bit about, I think of it as creativity, right? Creative art installations, different ways to get people connected. But can you speak a little bit more about the importance of creativity in solving the issues that we face when it comes to the climate and biodiversity crises? I can say a few things about that. Natasha can add to it. One, one of the um, challenges uh, for someone who is willing to begin thinking a bit differently about these, about the various uh, environmental problems that we face uh, is to realize that what has happened before and what has been tried before may not necessarily be what will, ha what will work in the future, which means we need to think of something that's entirely different. Creative thinking is thinking that challenges where we've been. It gets us to it gets us off dead center. It gets us away from what well, we can't do that. We've never done it that way before. It challenges that straight away. And let me add this dimension to it as well. A uh, creative thinking uh in in terms of my my dad now who had only a fifth grade education, a farmer all his life, we would go walking in the woods and he would say to me now listen to what you hear and watch carefully what you see but beyond the obvious listen for the whispers listen for that which is not loud and so evident that's likely something new and different and look in the shadows where there are things often not seen but the solution, now I'm putting in a different context, the solution to a problem may be in the whispers and in the shadows. And don't be afraid as you explore answers to these questions. To look where no one else has looked, to think about things that no one else has thought about, and put them out there for examination, for trial. I'm a strong advocate of learning by doing as well. And sometimes these things need trial and error, and so be it. 
Let's not be afraid to do what has not been done before. There's a lot more to creativity than that, but that's a that's a that's a primer. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a, that's incredible. I you know it. I I I feel like you have so many stories to share or that you could share, and I'm I wish this interview were now like three hours long because I want to ask you a million questions about your farm and what you found there and what creative ways you've you've come up with things to do there you know there's so much there's there's clearly a lot of passion many uh, many of uh, much of what we we're saying much of what i'm saying anyway is based in my we've had our farm now for well 60 years and what we've tried to do there in encouraging diversity encouraging uh prairie restoration uh, doing sustainable logging uh, all kinds of things we've been trying and doing and and i mentioned those along the way as you probably know from looking at the book so there's uh, i feel very strongly that the material that we're talking about, we, I wanted to make sure that it was based in reality. It wasn't just some formal thing that comes up from nowhere. Not that those ideas aren't important, but I wanted to have it grounded as well so people might say, well, there's some dumb professor shooting off his mouth again. I, I want to go beyond that. I think playing off of that, um, when I when I think of creative thinking, first of all, I am not the person who could color inside the line all the time, right? Like I, and that's okay. I, I what I get really it makes me sad when I hear someone saying I'm a failure because I didn't color in the lines, right? I didn't get the right answer. Well, there might be other ways to do things, and so I'm interested in having people explore that. And also, just thinking about when Jerry mentions academia, people who feel like because they don't have a degree in biology, they can't understand the natural world. They can't participate. And I get very excited when I hear about opportunities to be a citizen scientist, for example. We we can all go out, take a kid fishing. That's science. You know, they teach them about water quality and quantity issues. And um, and I love things like bio blitzes where you get out and you inventory a community and you find it, and you can do it in your backyard. What what is there? Like can I identify this? Plants and animals. And, and that gets you excited. And so I think of um, trekking monarch butterfly migrations and impacts on migratory animals that I'm excited now to see what birds are coming through and how is that different phenology. And we, we can all do that. And that's you don't need a degree to do that. And that's what gets me excited. It's how I get to know my neighbors and feel a part of my community. So I'm hoping thinking about yourself as a scientist, regardless of your degree, is a way people can be creative and get out, get out, and that we can have places that are accessible, for example, for people who live in a community where maybe they don't have access to a farm or something like that. I would add this little aside in terms of the writing approach that I use for, for all of my work. I mentioned my dad had a fifth grade education. My mother had a seventh grade education. Neither one graduated from eighth grade. I am writing so my parents could understand what I had to say. And I'll never forget my dad saying, I don't want to read any of those 50 cent words. <clears throat> meaning words that he didn't quite understand. And I hope it's not too overly obvious, but I am not writing at the PhD level, <laughs> trying very hard not to. No, I like it. it. It it makes it accessible to all. That's the whole idea, because what, what Natasha says is so true. What we're talking about is something that everyone can do. No matter what their educational background, where they live, it anyone has can do it, and they should. 
So this is not a question that I put in the list, but just from this conversation, have the two of you ever thought about creating a guidebook for scientists to think about how to relate to more of the regular people in the world and the creative thinkers in the world? Because that's a, that's a huge thing that I see is scientists are so like, well, the science, the science just shows us this. So we have to do that. It's like, okay, well, if the science were all we needed to change the world, I think we would be there already because the science is pretty clear on what's going on. And so it's a very interesting, it's so interesting seeing the book that you've created for everybody to to be able to take some sort of action. And I think it could, again, this is just me talking here because I think it's fascinating. You know, the other side too, to creating even more of that bridge. I just, do you have thoughts on that at all? I feel so strongly about that. For several years, I was a publications editor for University Extension, which meant, and I was editing material for 4-H members kids. And so I was translating research material into the language of a sixth grader or a seventh grader. And I found that fascinating to do. How to take a research report, which I learned how to study when I worked on my doctorate. Uh, I learned how to figure out and translate. The translation part to me was just a fascinating challenge. And I, I've been trying to do that ever since. I've been trying to teach others how to do that. And some say, well, why do you bother? Let's let's not worry about the academics. They talk to each other. We've got a, your point is so well taken because we've somehow or another, we've got to reach the point where what is important to be shared can be shared in a way that everyone understands. Yeah, I think we've saw that very clearly, for example, with the COVID pandemic, right, that people were making health decisions, right, based on what they're hearing from the experts, the researchers who maybe weren't clearly communicating um, or things were getting misconstrued. So I'm I'm very interested when I when I talk to researchers I do try to get to their personal side I try to get beyond the lab a little bit I I like to take them back and ask them why did you get interested in this area in the first place I think sometimes they lose sight of that they're so focused on trying to solve a problem or answer a research question that they forget about that passion and why they wanted to devote their life to it in the first place and I'm also really interested in people who devote their whole lives to basic research where they know they may never see right the end point of it, the true results. But it was so important to them to devote their lives to this work. And so getting to them as people, I think, talking to them about their inspiration for this research. And sometimes I find out it's, you know, I, I lost a parent to a form of cancer or something. So I wanted to go, I wanted to make a difference. Um, in my personal case, I lost my mother to Parkinson's disease. I want to be able to tell that story about research being done to be impactful. And then we we see them as people instead of lab coats and um, beakers and right Bunsen burners. And um, if I'm talking to someone who's studying something in the natural sciences, I try to go out with them and have them show me instead of just telling me. And I think oftentimes they rely a lot on their peer-reviewed journals, which are absolutely important to share. But for the average person, I think they need to see them as people and hear their stories. I mean, again, it go, it goes back to storytelling. Like there's always people become passionate about something for a reason. And it's usually whether it's a positive or a negative story, you know, an inspiring one or whatever, it, it comes back to some form of a story and something that happened to a person, an individual person, like you just said. And that's what the in other individuals then resonate with, right? And 
we become inspired because of what they went through or what their drive is because of what they went through. So I, I just think that that's, I think it's so interesting. One of my one-liners is, we are our stories. And it's so true. We're shaped by our life experience. And to be able to share that and connect with others and then create positive change through those things is so important, especially, you know, when we're facing something so big and so, so monumental that sometimes when you're looking at the problem as a whole, you think, I can't do anything about this as an individual. That's so true. And it it ends up being, well, that's somebody else's job to do it. That's the scientist's job to do it. That's the politician's job to do it. And and that is, in my biased judgment, wrong thinking. It's not going to work if that's what we see as the end product. Or and, And people say, well, I don't have time to do this thinking stuff you're talking about. That takes, it does take time, of course. That's why it's important to take time. Take some time. Don't just listen to some loud-talking person on television or on radio and say, oh, yeah, that sounds like something I can buy into. And that, in most instances, is so wrong and so inadequate and so not even the beginning of what you ought to be thinking about, in my judgment. And Jerry, wasn't that really the impetus of Earth Day, right? The government wasn't doing anything. We didn't have the Clean Air Act. We didn't have an EPA. There was no movement. And so people (laughs) had to step in, you know, and rally around and create the environmental movement. It had to be grassroots because nothing was being done. But people were seeing serious impacts. And I think that is what happened with Earth Day. People said, enough, we've got to do something. As an aside, I happen to have been in the audience when Gaylord Nelson first introduced the idea of Earth Day, which was in the, the stock pavilion at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. I and a, and a room full of other people were there as he, for the first time, shared with us what the idea of Earth Day. And then I got to know him a little bit. He wrote the introduction to my very first book, The Land Still Lives, which is an environmental book. Put that on your list, by the way. <laughs> how did how was that received, the idea of the first Earth Day? How, you know, what was it, that like? It, it was received way better than one would ever think. There wasn't any sense that that's a Republican idea, that's a Democratic idea. That did not even occur. It was a yes, we need to do something about this as a people. It doesn't matter your religion, your background, your politics, your educational level. This is something that ought to be done. Gaylord Nelson, in his introduction to my book, wrote some things about what needed to happen. And unfortunately, 50 years later, my publisher republished that book. And what Gaylord Nelson said 50 years ago was true yet Yes, last year. Just unfortunate. Well, that was going to be my next question was almost how have how did we go from starting in, in not such a great spot? Because, of course, we the issue was still happening then and is still happening now. But we've drifted so far from I from what I take was the original takeaway of what Earth Day was supposed to be, where everybody can contribute and help and you know it doesn't matter if you're a republican it doesn't matter if you're a democrat and we've strayed so far from that how do you feel we get back to that starting point of 
we're in this together and we have to move forward on this together if we're going to create impactful change. Well, this, I, I, we're hoping this book will help some in doing that. There were some good things happened along the way. I don't mean to suggest that there, there, there's a bunch of legislation that occurred, which is still very important today in reference to water and air uh, and so on. The idea of getting people to work together uh, is a challenge. And I think we've touched on some of the ways. When I was a bit younger, <laughs> yes, I did a lot of speaking all over the place. And I would always tell stories. And, and, and I'll, I'll come back to underline your other point. I found stories as a way of bringing people together. And maybe we, do, maybe we need to do even more of that than we have in the past. I don't know. I, I think we need to do a better job of encouraging and teaching people how to find reliable, accurate sources of information. I think sometimes people don't get involved because someone else is telling them, you you can't do anything about this. This is too big. Sure. Or you can have jobs or you can have a healthy environment, but you can't have both. And we know that isn't true. And we give examples in our guidebook where absolutely having a healthy environment can create jobs, sustainable jobs. But when you, you hear this misinformation, sometimes just flat out lies, and then you start believing them and you integrate them in your decision making and you start to feel hopeless. And I hope our book gives people hope again, like Earth Day did, that we can do something and we can sift through all of this noise, right? Just There's just too much misinformation. It's too easy to put things out there online and find reliable sources and ask what motivates someone to say something like that, right? Where And get back to that passion and hope and feeling like as an individual or working with my community that even if it's something small, like our community garden, that we can do something because I, I just I think we've lost that and I think we've had very powerful voices that have stifled us. Absolutely, and and when it comes to those reliable sources, to me, that's where so much of the critical thinking comes in and the thinking for yourself and finding sources that you trust, but doing the research and just you know if you're interested in the topic, it's not hard to find a thousand different sources on it and you know, pulling all of that information in and creating your own opinion on it. And um, that's, you know, unfortunately, that's not necessarily just for the environmental uh, topic at this point. It's for many things in our world. that fits a lot of situations. But we have a little section in the book, as you probably noticed, where we deal with misinformation and disinformation. Misinformation, inaccurate information. Disinformation, an attempt to do something that's so outrageous that you would say, geez, that sounds outrageous. And that person says, aha, that's so it is, you know. And we've got a lot of disinformation out there these days, a lot of misinformation. And what we've tried to do in this book is to here are some ways by which you can tell what of this needs to be left behind. And we go through how do you determine what's truthful, what's fact, and what's somebody's goofy idea. Absolutely. I think, Natasha, you kind of touched on such a beautiful just takeaway from the book, but I, I do want to make sure that I ask the two of you, you know, what is, if you could leave readers with one key takeaway, what would it be? Because there's so much in this guidebook that could, that, you know, you can walk away from it with 
with every tool that you need to feel empowered. But what's the the one that the two of you, I mean, it can be different, but I want to make sure I ask that. Well, I hope people will take the opportunity to take a look inside themselves, maybe a little less screen time, a little more scene time, get outside, um, do some creative and critical thinking, because we don't often allow ourselves that time. We're so busy. So I think to be patient, to allow yourself the time to ask yourself, question, you know, your opinions, what are they based on? And I think we need to consider diverse voices who might not agree with me and to consider future generations. And then beyond that, I just hope it's it's gives people hope again, right? Get out on your bike, take a kid fishing, start a small garden, even if it's a, a container garden on your porch. Um, but that we want to leave people feeling like they can be healthier, happier, and have some hope in real change. And I always, you know, I'm a fan of Jane Goodall. I love to look at our, our visionaries for inspiration. And Jerry and I talk about the history of the environmental movement and young and old, very diverse voices who are amazing mentors that can inspire us. And I know she said, what you do makes a difference. It's up to you, though, to decide what kind of difference you want to make. And that's what I hope people do with this book is find something in it for them that they can do and feel hopeful and make a difference. Jerry, do you have anything? I would I would just add just a little bit. And it's sort of repeating some of what Natasha said. The environment's in trouble. Everyone has a responsibility for helping to solve the problem. Here's some ideas on how to do it. I mean, it's true. It's true. That's that's. It boils down to that, but um, you know, I'm I'm so inspired by the book, by this conversation, by the two of you. I is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't touched on? I like I said, I could dive into so many more questions, but in the interest of time, and I really want people to want to read the book and not give everything away. Well, give so, it all away. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think the title says a lot. We plant an idea here. That's what you do with it. it is up to you. We hope you will take it seriously and move to action. But we're planting an idea and, and we hope people will join us in growing it. I, I've been planting an idea. Don't fall off your chairs now for 75 years. So <laughs> planting an idea here is, is uh, goes right along with when you, when you plant a garden you never quite know what's going to happen but it's going to be interesting and that's what we're hoping here as well absolutely thank you both so so much for this wonderful conversation i cannot wait we cannot wait to share this with everybody um the week of earth day i hope that this book really really impacts people's thinking people's actions because it certainly has with us and we're just really excited to see what comes of it so thank you so much. We, I really appreciate that you're doing this. It, it's Sometimes this kind of a book gets set off to the side. That sounds kind of strange. Let's leave that over here. And I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you so much. Of course. We're happy to share this. You know, these are this is what it's all about, sharing different stories from different people, trying to make impact and positive change. It's the only way things are going to change. I mean, it's little steps by different people and coming together for collective action too. So I love it. Be wild. Yeah. Be wild. I love it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. 
Find us on social media through the Wild Foundation. And if you're feeling inspired, don't hesitate to share this podcast with those around you and maybe even give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate the support more than you know, and it's that support that allows our work to continue and evolve.